Psalm 97. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make boast in their worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. This is the word of God. Uh, welcome all of you at home on Zoom. Welcome all. Uh, and just in case some of you don't know me, I'm not Scott Strickman. I'm the guy who started the church that uh, hired and Scott's on vacation. He invited me to come preach on his way, and I'm really, really glad to do that. I, I'm talking uh, during the four weeks I'm with you about what I'm calling upstream politics. Not so much about issues, but about the sorts of attitudes and perspectives that God wants us to bring uh, to our public lives, uh, regardless of what, where we stand on any particular issue. So that's what we're going to continue talking about today. A number of years ago, Islamic uh, militants enraged over a YouTube video originating in the U.S. that Vox Mohammed murdered Chris Stevens. You probably remember that story, the U.S. ambassador to Libya. This story grieved me at the time. If you remember it, I'm sure it grieved and shocked you. But here's a question I want to ask you in the light of Psalm 97. Should it shock us when our God is as deeply committed to world dominion as any Islamic militant would say that Allah is. I mean, think about what we just heard read in Psalm 97, uh, verses 1 and 3 to 5. The Lord reigns. The, let earth rejoice. Not just one portion of the earth, not just Palestine, not just Israel, but let the earth rejoice. Let the planet, let the many coastlands, not just a few of them, be glad. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world, not just believers' personal lives. The earth, the whole earth, sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. So what I think I need to tell you at this point is that if you and I count ourselves to be Bible people, if we count ourselves to be Christians, we'll have to let go of the idea that our faith is simply about us being happy or forgiven, or safe, or going to heaven. Those good things are part of the story, but the canvas upon which that story is lived out is much, much broader, much grander. 
The story that we get to tell ourselves and we get to tell our friends is that the creator of everything who made himself known as Yahweh to Israel and now to us in our world in Jesus is taking back our proud and broken planet. Our God reigns. Let the earth, the whole earth, rejoice. And not only is God's plan universal, according to Psalm 97, his plan is fierce. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries before him. In 1852, Frederick Douglass railed against slavery's wickedness in a speech before the Rochester Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society, and this is part of what he said. Oh, be warned, be warned. A horrible reptile is coiled up in your nation's bosom. The venomous creature is nursing at the tender breast of your youthful republic. For the love of God, tear it away and fling, uh, and, and fling from you that hideous monster. Now surely, the God of Psalm 97, the foundation of whose uh, throne, the foundations of whose throne are righteousness and justice, verse 3, shared Douglas's fury at slavery. So it can't be wrong for you and me to get fired up when we see what we perceive to be the rise of ungodly trends in culture and politics and seek to do something about them. Surely we can't be wrong to feel that way. The all-important question, and the question which I think we keep stumbling over in the church these days, is the question of how. How do we express and work through this fired-up desire to see God's reign advanced? How do we, how does God advance his reign on the earth? Now, Psalm 97 helps us answer this question, and it, as I already said, it gives us another chance to reflect on what I am calling upstream politics, not so much our stance on particular issues as the attitudes and perspectives that we get to bring to public life wherever we happen to stand on any given issue. God advances his reign in part, according to Psalm 97, by identifying and then throwing down our idols. He crushes and destroys idolatry. That's uh, a critical part of the way in which he advances his reign. Verse 7, all worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. God hates idolatry, and so must we, starting with idolatry that's in ourselves. That's always where we have to start. We have to deal with our own idols. Now, what is idolatry? Let me try to define it for you. Idolatry happens whenever we give our first love to anything other than God. We have all kinds of secondary loves, and they're not, illegit they're not illegitimate. They're okay. But our first love, we must love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, this can happen, this idolatry, this failure to do that, can happen in any number of ways. When we deny God altogether, obviously when we just throw him away and say he's not even there, or 
When we continue worshiping him, we're gathered today together to worship him, but allow other realities to rival his preeminence in our lives. Or here's a third possibility, when we redefine him, when we redefine what he is like or what he's up to, often while we are retaining the traditional God language and even retaining a, a proper theological formulation, and yet we actually are tweaking him. And, and, uh, and, and so it doesn't sound like we are idolaters, but we actually are. I think that is the toughest problem for Christians who get used to God language. We use it all the time. We can articulate exactly the proper way to believe, um, and yet at the same time, in the way we actually live, we have tweaked him. We've tweaked his agenda. We've tweaked his person. We've changed who he actually is. And that is a form of idolatry that's very subtle, but very, very real. Um, we will try to identify some of the symptoms of idolatry in our political lives today. But first, I want to remind us all of what the God of the Bible is really like because of the problem I just mentioned. We forget what he's really like. We make him up, uh, even though we use the same language. And with the help of Psalm 97 and the larger biblical story. Psalm 97, just a couple of things that just jump out of the page of Psalm 97. God is invariably good. Invariably good. Invariably just. Verse 2, righteousness and justice are the foundation of, not just at the edges of, his throne. Recently, the leader of Belarus, under the pretense of a bomb threat, forced a commercial jetliner to land in his country so that he could extricate and imprison a journalist he didn't like, who were saying things about him which he didn't like. Now, we long for the end of this sort of thing, for a ruler who treats people with fairness and dignity, who's not afraid of the truth, and who puts all things right. God, whose every act is founded upon his good character, does this, and he will do this. And his son, Jesus Christ, who is now the Lord of heaven and earth, he is like this, and he, um, uh, he uh, uh, follows through on his agenda with utmost righteousness. Or then, try verse 11 in Psalm 97. God is holy. Give thanks to his holy name. Now, holiness uh, means a lot of things, but I think the most important thing it means is that God is incomparable. There is no God that we can come up with, and we come up with all sorts of alternative gods all the time. <laughs> but there is no God that we can come up with who is anything like him. Idolatry is so shameful because it takes the real God and marginalizes him or diminishes him. And the tragedy of that is it terribly diminishes us when we indulge in it. Just read Romans 1 and you'll see what idolatry does to a whole society, what idolatry does to an individual. Now, I want to think beyond Psalm 97 for a bit and think uh, of the long story of God's involvement with us, a story that provides the backdrop to 97. The writer of Psalm 97 would have known this backdrop, at least the first part of it. Think of the beginning of the story in Genesis 1. Ancient creation stories arising at the same cultural moment and in the same cultural context 
as the story that we find in Genesis, are full of violence, and they're full of oppression. In one of them, a prominent one, the god Marduk enters into bloody and long-lasting uh, warfare with Tiamat, who is roughly equivalent to the chaotic deep that we find in Genesis 1. After a long and bloody battle, after he slays her, he creates the world out of her entrails. He disembowels her and then creates the world out of what he's disemboweled. In another story uh, from the same cultural moment, um, uh, the lesser gods, saddled with menial labor by the more powerful gods, rebel against their more powerful masters, forcing the creation of human beings to do their work, to do the work of slaves, to pick up after and clean up outside the mansion of the higher gods. Now, the Genesis story is so different in that cultural context. It's so strikingly different. Again, it's dramatically different. God creates all things, not by violence, but by a series of majestic commands. Let there be, and there is. Let there be, and there is. No strife, no effort, just majestic words. And then he brings the whole enterprise to its culmination by making us. And he makes us. How does he make us? In his image. You and I, every person you ever met, is made in his image. Not for slave labor, but rather for loving relationship with him and with each other. And he makes the male and female that way, obliterating this kind of destructive power that men impose upon women. It's nowhere in the Bible. In the big story of the Bible, going back to its origins, God makes man and woman together in his image and gives great honor to them. He sets our first parents in a garden, not in a sweatshop, not digging trenches outside the royal palace, full of rich abundance and delightful beauty. And even after their catastrophic disobedience, he doesn't notice what he does. He comes asking questions. He doesn't come and burn them up. No, he comes to them in the garden and he asks them questions. And he promises uh, to rescue and restore them in due course. And the history that unfolds from that time on through the rest of the Old Testament is not without chastening. You can't miss the chastening. It happens, okay? I'm not going to deny that for sure. Chastening happens at times severe. But God constantly reasserts his love over and over again, forgiving them over and over again, restoring them after they've wandered and turned back, over and over again, rescuing them from people who are oppressing them, over and again, over and over again, pleading with them like a jilted lover. Read Hosea. Again and again, um, promising them things. Jeremiah summarizes this in the book of Lamentations, this wonderful, wonderful statement in Lamentations 3, I think it is. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every... They were new this morning. They are to you. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. That's the story that the writer of Psalm 97 would have known. But he wouldn't have known the, the end of the story, and we do. 
because we know what happens when God comes in Jesus. God's dealings with us reach their full and climactic expression then, when the Creator voluntarily chooses to enter our wounded world, our disobedient world, our violent, faithless, and oppressive world, and live in it as one of us, subject to everything that you... What kind of God does that? Subject to everything that you were subject to this week. He entered the world so that he could be subject to it and not take an end run around it. Ever the ruler, of course, he is the ruler. He issues warnings and commands and promises. And ever the loving and compassionate sovereign, he heals and he forgives and he feeds and he delivers. Remember the woman caught in, in, in adultery. He says, who condemns you? And she says, no one, Lord, they've all left. And he says, then neither do I condemn you. Go in peace and sin no more. That's what he's like. He has compassion on hungry people who are without a shepherd and need food, and he feeds them in the thousands. That's what God is like when he comes as a man to live among us, ever seeking our love. Here's another amazing thing about him. Ever seeking our love, he never, to this day, he never forces allegiance upon us permitting us instead to make our choices. But this time, and for the first time, having chosen our humanity, God makes himself vulnerable to our choices in a way that he had never before made himself vulnerable. And what do we choose to do? We choose to reject him. We choose to humiliate. We humiliate God. And we choose to murder him. But that unspeakable crime turns out to be the occasion of his glorious triumph over the brokenness in us and in our world. For as we were wounding him, he was taking on our criminality as if it were his own criminality and passing under the shadow of his own judgment for that criminality so that we would never have to pass under the shadow of that judgment. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the story. That's the God we get to celebrate. This is the leader and the government we get to give our deepest and first love to as we do the responsible thing of seeking to live out our public lives, our political lives. As we do that, which we ought to do, we do it by submitting to him and loving him and imitating him and trusting him. That's what I mean by upstream politics. And of course, the question is, how good are we at that? Do we? Or do we slip in the direction of political idolatry? Um, are we in danger of allowing political realities to push this God to the margins? Are we allowing them to push us to redefine him or to redefine his methods? or to redefine his agenda. Now, I want to try to get practical now, and I want to talk about 
four symptoms of what I call creeping political idolatry. None of us is really perfect with respect to idolatry. None of us is. And we, and we allow it to sort of creep into our lives. And let me get at these four symptoms by asking four questions. Number one, is nationalism replacing patriotism? Patriotism, good. Nationalism, not so good. First question. Second question, are conspiracy theories gaining too much traction in our minds? Third question, is our political identity starting to eclipse our Christian identity? And number four, are we politically isolated? And I'm indebted, I have to tell you, for some of this material to columnist David French writing in a wonderful book called Divided We Fall and elsewhere as well. So let me talk about each of those symptoms of creeping political idolatry. Number one, is nationalism replacing patriotism in our hearts? Last time I checked, God is not an American. Just in case you might think he is, he's not. <laughs> he's the Lord of all the nations. He's not an American. Nor does he prescribe only one way of being patriotic. We might choose, for example, to stand during the singing of the national anthem, or like NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick, we might choose to take a knee because we do not see our nation living up to its or to God's ideals. Another story. During World War II, some Jehovah's Witnesses in West Virginia refused, for reasons of faith, to salute the flag in public school, violating West Virginia state law. They were tried and they were convicted, but upon appeal to the Supreme Court, they were exonerated with these words. Here's what the Supreme Court said. If there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that no official, high or petty, can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion, or force other matters of opinion upon the people. Though written from, that was the finding of the Supreme Court, the majority opinion. Uh, though written from a constitutional rather than a Christian perspective mindset, this ruling was very Christian, cha championing the sanctity of the human conscience, the freedom of the human conscience. The true God, the God of the Bible, the God we claim is first in our hearts, loves every nation. And he has set his son over all of them. Jesus lived, died, and rose again not to make any particular nation great, but to make every nation good. As the people in every nation, starting with us, learn to surrender their hearts by the Spirit of Christ joyfully uh, to the reign of Jesus Christ. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, it says in verse 1. That includes us. And let the many coastlands be glad. So that's symptom number one, creeping nationalism. Here's symptom number two. Are conspiracy theories gaining 
too much traction in our minds. According to a late January survey of the conservative American Enterprise Institute, one in four, 25% of white evangelicals, believed that the QAnon theory about Joe Biden and his cohorts stealing the election from Donald Trump is, quote, completely or mostly accurate. The story of the stolen election is a lie. I just have to tell you that. It's not true. That story is not true. Repeatedly denied by scores of judicial rulings and in continuing investigations. And it is a pernicious and wicked lie that helped motivate the mob on January 6th to storm the Capitol in the effort to forestall the counting of the electoral votes. One clip in a host of disturbing clips that I watched from that day got to me perhaps more than any of the others that I saw. In that clip, a tall young man is facing a Capitol Police officer across a barricade coldly and repeatedly declaring to that cop, traitor, traitor, traitor. The lie had completely taken over the assailant. The lie had taken him over, reducing the other man who was doing his patriotic duty to the incarnation of political evil. This was a great, great evil. It was dehumanizing to the police officer, and it rose from idolatry, from allowing a false narrative to take over our hearts. And we must resist that. If we love the real God, whose throne is built upon the foundation of righteousness, we will hate all lies. We will hate them. We will hate every misrepresentation of the truth, including this one. We will at the very least, at the very least, with respect to conspiracy theories, ask hard questions about any assertion that makes complex political reality too simple or identifies the bad guys too readily or dismissively. We will put to shame, that's the, those are the words in verse 7, we will put to shame the grip of every and any lie in our hearts and do what we can to counter them in the public mind and in the mind of our friends as we have opportunity. And I know it's not easy. And we need to find ways to do it peaceably and ironically, but it's part of our job. We need to be truth people. We need to be people who love the God of truth, the God who never lies. So that's the second. Here's a third symptom of creeping political idolatry. When I'll put it in the form of a question. Is our political identity eclipsing our Christian identity? Writer Perry Bacon Jr. argues that, quote, telling a person about one aspect of your identity tells them far less about you than simply telling them whether you are a Republican or a Democrat. For example, if you told them that you were a, pub a Republican, they would reasonably assume that you are not black, that you are not lesbian, that you are not gay, that you are not transgender, that you're not bisexual, that you are not non-religious, and that you're not Jewish. According to a 2019 poll of the Public Relations Research Institute, we noted this last week, 
Americans are more likely to be unhappy if their child marries outside their party than if their child marries outside their faith. Another data point, 80% of white evangelicals voted Republican in the 2016 election. Another data point, churches have split along political lines. Black urban evangelical congregations tend to be heavily Democrat. And white suburban evangelical congregations and rural as well tend to be heavily Republican. According to uh, Michael Graham and Schuyler Flowers writing last month in Mere Christianity, the evangelical world, despite its common theology, you sit an evangelical down and you say, do you believe in the Apostles' Creed? And he'll say, yeah. Do you believe in the Bible? He'll say, yeah. So we have the Bible and the creeds, uh, the historic creeds, all in common. And yet, there are these incredible... What? I got very excited about that one. There are these incredible um, fissures. Where, according to uh, Graham and Flowers, the evangelical world is, uh, is fractured into at least six groups these days, and they're growing, no three of which seem ever able to coexist under the same roof. Contributing significantly to this fracturing are increasingly irreconcilable political visions, political priorities, and political identities. What's the problem? Well, maybe you get what I'm trying to say the problem is. Here's the problem. Political identity is increasingly occupying the place in our hearts that only God and our identification with him should. Politics is telling us who our friends are. Politics is telling us who our family is. Politics is telling us who God's friends are and who God's enemies are. The God whom we claim to worship is not happy with that. The God whom we claim to worship is calling out to us. He's saying something like this. He's saying, dear ones, beloved ones, I love you all. He really loves the church, by the way. He, he, you know, he has to speak prophetically but he speaks prophetically to people he loves. He loves so much he gave his life for us. All, all six groups in that six-way fissure, all right? He loves us all. And he says to us, dear ones, my son did not die and rise again to make Americans or Republicans or Democrats out of you. He died and rose again to create a single new humanity whose bond transcends every other's. And God's asking us, dear ones, do you believe this? Not only do you believe it, do you love it? Do you love this truth so much that you are working very, very hard to love the Christian whose politics you cannot stand? How much do you love what I sent my son to do? The God we claim to worship, um, and let me move on to the last one. Are we politically isolated from one another, from those uh, uh, Christians who happen to be in another place politically? 
We may find ourselves engaged politically, but only from within the shelter of churches or news feeds or parts of the country where everyone agrees with us politically. I want to tell you a story. It's a really mo very moving and, and uh, uh, I think effective and powerful story. In American racism, we've got so very far to go. David French tells of his experience after adopting a black girl from Ethiopia. He and his wife, together with their two natural children, are white. And, and this is what he writes. He says, I freely confess that to some extent where I stood on American racial issues was dictated by where I, um, where, by where I sat my entire life. I always deplored racism, uh, but I was also someone who recoiled at words like, quote, systemic racism. I looked at the strides we'd made since slavery and Jim Crow and said, look, how far we've come. We've come a long way. I was less apt to say, and look how much farther we have to go. And then he continues the story. Then I went from being the father of two white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed kids to the father of three kids, one of them a beautiful little girl from Ethiopia. When Naomi arrived, um, our experience changed. Strange incidents started to happen. There was the white woman who demanded that Naomi, the only black girl in our neighborhood pool, point out her parents, in spite of the fact that she was clearly wearing the colored bracelet showing that she was permitted to swim. And there was the time a police officer approached her at a department store and questioned her about who she was with and what she was shopping for. That never happened to my older daughter. And there was a classmate who told Naomi that she couldn't come to our house for a play date because, quote, my dad says it's dangerous to go to black people's neighborhoods, unquote. I could go on and on, uh, French continues, um, sure, and some of the incidents could have benign explanation, but as they multiplied, it was clear that Naomi's experience was clearly different from her siblings, and it became clear. It became increasingly implausible that all these explanations were benign. Now here's my point coming out of that story. Um, Naomi's story, so different from that of her adoptive father and his natural children, opened his eyes to realities he had been unable to see before. His little girl moved him because he loved her, because she was his friend, and that's the key. She was his friend, but she was from a different culture. His little girl moved him out of cultural isolation and engaged him more fully in God's loving zeal for what is good and what is just. Now think about the God whom we love and claim to worship. The God we claim to worship this morning filled and fills his life to overflowing with Naomi's. God has all sorts of Naomi's in his own life. For one thing, he crossed over from eternity into humanness filling his life with human beings. Good grief, he befriended you. He befriended me. And I, I am a colossal bore to God. And I am incredibly unpleasant to God a good bit of the time. But he's my friend. He loves me. He knows me. He's crossed over completely into my own life.
So the question for us is this. It's a very practical question. Are there any Naomi's in your life? In my life, friends who are so culturally and so racially different that they force us to ask questions about our status quo, whatever it happens to be. Or are we in a bubble? And are we content to be in a bubble? A white bubble, an Asian bubble, a black bubble, a rich bubble, a well-educated bubble, a not-so-well-educated bubble. I don't care what the bubble is. Are we content to be in a bubble? We mustn't be. God was not, and we shouldn't be. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. Verse 6, and all the peoples see his glory. Verse 9, you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth, not just over my familiar parts of the earth. We get to love him. We get to honor him. We get to be like him by refusing to live in political isolation. New York, by the way, is a great place to break out of our bubbles. I mean, just turn around. There's somebody who doesn't look like you. What a, what a privilege. What a wonderful opportunity. And yet even in New York, even in New York, we can bubbleize. Try not to do that. Now, I have a takeaway for you because I have to end. Of course, let's do what we can to call out and throw down the idols in our own lives. We have to start with ourselves. We have to be really tough on ourselves, be honest with ourselves. We must start. Don't, don't start telling that person and that person and that person about how idolatrous they are. Don't do that. You know, talk about your, to yourself about yourself. Of course, we have to do that. But let me leave you with a, an additional takeaway, which I want to stress even more, and it's this. Um, above all, let's join the psalmist and rejoice. Just give ourselves to rejoicing in God as he is. Verse 12, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, give thanks to his holy name. Rejoicing, you see, rejoicing in God as he is, is a great antidote to idolatry of all sorts. It is the great antidote, it seems to me. It's the transformative discipline by which we join the whole earth in setting our hopes in the right place. In God, not the God that we make up, but God as he really and truly is. The God who reigns, who is good, who gave himself for us, who lives in us to change our hearts. And I've got a promise for you uh, and for myself. When we set our hearts on praising this God, our hearts change. We become less idolatrous because he's so wonderful. He gets hold of us and we start to follow him more fully. So let me pray for us all. Lord, um, it's, um, it's hard. In fact, it's impossible to escape the, uh, the lure of idolatry. Lord, it, it comes up. It, it creeps in all the time. You know that. We don't have to pretend it's not true. But we can come to you rejoicing that you love us, that you came into our world to live and die for us, that you pray for us, that you live in us now. And we come, because of all those things, asking you to help us, uh, to change us, to deal with us, to make us surprises in our angry, angry world, among our angry friends. Help us, Lord, to be different. And we ask this in your matchless name. Amen.